Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6? We're continuing this wonderful journey through the gospel of Mark. Jesus continues to lead us, disciple us, um, instruct us, encourage us, convict us. He's, he's working in our lives in, in powerful ways. Mark chapter 6 is where we'll begin. If you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand? Our ushers would love to bring you one. You can keep it if you want. Um, just bring a Bible to anybody who needs it. The ushers are ready to do that. Just keep your hand up till they get one to you. Mark chapter 6 is where we are. We will begin right at the end of the chapter at verse 53. Let me pray. Lord, help us now, please, as we go to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark six fifty three. <clears throat> when they had crossed over, Jesus and his disciples, after he walks on water, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, Jesus has already shown us that it's not some magical garment, it's faith in him that is the source of this healing and that healing's temporary it points to the ultimate healing he provides in himself and his life and death and resurrection but he continues to do these miracles mark is highlighting the miraculous of jesus ministry showing the power of christ the authority of christ the way he's taking back his world asserting his rule and reign uh, but now we go through a shift here and We've had lots of miracles, one after another, but now we go to an emphasis on teaching and the even increased opposition that Jesus experiences from the religious leaders. And here this begins in Mark 7. They're obviously concerned about this ministry that's gaining popularity and attention and prominence, and so there's this confrontation because of Jesus Miraculous ministry. Here it goes. 7-1. Now when the Pharisees, remember this religious sect, um, known now for their self-righteousness, but looked up to at this time as the ideal religious people. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, oh, okay, so apparently a delegation has been sent from Jerusalem. There are religious leaders who are scrutinizing Jesus here in his Galilean ministry, but now it seems a special envoy has gone to especially turn the heat up on Jesus' ministry. A delegation goes from Jerusalem for this. They make the trip up. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then we get this parenthetical explanation of this assuming that all the readers of this gospel are not Jews who know what's going on here, we have an explanation. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding, important term here, 
to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So let me pause here and help us understand what's going on. Mark is, is helping us see here that there are these traditions of the elders. There are teachings of religious leaders that... Uh, are about to be significantly contrasted with the teachings of the law itself, the word of God given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, giving these uh, practices of approaching God. Cleanliness rituals. Now, there are laws given by God that actually make sense. God needs to instruct his people to understand that we don't just flippantly go into his presence. We, we need to go in a clean way. I dare say not one of you has ever gone on a date of any significance without cleaning up. Right? You would be saying something about your date and the date if you didn't brush your teeth for the event. Right? If you never cleaned up, if you never gave any impression that you actually care about this. And if you have, you and I should talk maybe about <laughs> what you're communicating to your date. But, but uh, God's trying to impress upon his people with these cleanliness rituals the seriousness of approaching him. You can read through Leviticus and the laws and you say, wow, what is going on here? Well, God is trying to make this massive point that we've got to prepare ourselves to go into his presence. We've got to realize our state before him, who he is in his holiness, and and that you take that deadly seriously. And so there are all these rules and regulations he gives, especially for the priests who go and offer sacrifice. But, But notice what, we see in this passage. These are now traditions of men. You have these laws, these cleanliness rituals, which are primarily for the priests before they go and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. But, but I believe in, in a well-intentioned beginning, they wanted to put what is literally called fences around Torah. They, there's the law, and the law is given, and the law is serious and it's given by God but then they understandably don't want to break the law so you put a fence around Torah and then what happens though is you put another fence around the fence and then another fence around the fence around the fence and before you know it you've got a whole lot of fences between you and the actual law and what happens is, is the fences start to actually take on more and more authority to the point where they not only hold the same authority as the law, they actually start to hold greater authority than the law itself. And then human folly and foolishness and sin gets involved and these religious leaders can start to use the fences for their own ends. To actually... Uh, connive ways they can get what they want and they end up subverting subverting the very very word of God itself. And so you've got these traditions of men and, and there's nothing wrong with tradition, is there? Tradition is good. You could even call the fact that we have service times when we do a tradition of sorts, right? We set up 
ways we do things. We have uh, observances that we do that aren't explicitly biblical, but just are practically expedient or smart or wise. And these could even have moral implications. If, if someone is an alcoholic, it's probably not smart to spend a lot of time in bars if you want to move away from that. And you could say, well, the Bible doesn't say you can't go in bars, but man, it's pretty smart to set up a, a rule so you don't break the rule of drunkenness. Yeah, so traditions in themselves can be good things that actually work together with what God has taught is true and, and can make things actually practically possible and helpful. Right? We fast, we, we do things to prepare our souls, sort of, sort of like these cleansing rituals, to position ourselves before God. But those things can so easily become traditions of men that take on eventually more weight than the word of God itself and can even be used in self-seeking evil ways. We just mess up the things God does, the things God does so often. So, so we've, we've got to know the difference between traditions and the word of God. That's, that's what's going on here. So we've got traditions, and, and realize these traditions had gotten to that point with these washings. So they're intended for the priests, but then apparently now they've spread to everybody. So the religious leaders say, well, it's not just the priests who need to go through these ritual cleanse, cleansings before they offer sacrifice, but everybody needs to do it. Everybody needs to, to do these things. And even when they go to the marketplace, when you come back from the marketplace, you, you better go through these ritual cleansings and, and make sure all these, these instruments you use, and it spreads before you know it. You know, you go to Stater Brothers, you come back, you need to go through these cleansings, and before you know it, it's this burden on people, and they miss the whole point. They miss the whole point of the law. They miss the whole point of the traditions that were trying to help you keep the law. And it's getting so messed up and Jesus is not going to put up with it. And here are the Pharisees who represent what Jesus is trying to point out and do away with. Watch what happens, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, the ones who prided themselves on keeping all these laws in ways that were examples and instructive and they built these fences that they had become so proud of. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah the prophet, uh, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wow, he goes to Isaiah and he draws this prophecy against the rebellious leaders as the prophet is warning them of God's impending judgment. And he grabs this and he says, Isaiah wasn't just talking about those in his day, he's talking about you. Jesus is not happy. It's amazing, isn't it? We've seen Jesus so compassionate, so kind, 
so gracious, so patient, healing people who were unclean and and marginalized and outcast with the tenderness of a father, with amazing compassion. But here we see a side of Jesus that must be included in our Jesus portfolio. This picture of him better be there because this is not a lack of compassion. This is not a lack of grace. This is actually flowing out of deep love that hates the fact that these burdens are being put on people. And who's getting this burden the most, you think? Well, wouldn't it be the Gentiles? It's not just the Jewish people who happen not to be keeping the laws very well, like Jesus' disciples here, but Gentiles who don't have them at all. The covenant's always been about reaching the nations. It's always been about being a blessing to the nations, to the world. And when you set up these rules where you just can't come to worship unless you got all these little rules tidied up, you are saying to the people who are desperate for the grace of God, you're not welcome. You're just not welcome here. You're just not tidied up quite enough. You can't come in. Jesus despises this. Jesus hates what they're doing. And man, he unloads. He calls them out. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you're a bunch of phonies. This is how Jesus feels. You know, as apostles, you want to see the apostles get mad, you do the same thing. You miss grace. And you replace it with self-righteous law-keeping. And Jesus won't have it. He says, you, you've got all the right words. You can ace all the exam questions in your theology classes. Uh, you know the biblical language is really well, and you can really impress people with your knowledge, but you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You're empty. Your heart is far away from God even though your words seem so right and impressive. You've got a heart problem, he says. You've got a serious, you've got heart disease. And as we'll see, nothing short of a heart transplant will work to solve this problem. And their worship then, their, their worship is, is empty. It's vain. It's not pleasing to God. It's bankrupt worship. You know, we've been worshiping God corporately this morning. Some of you with far more beautiful voices than others. I don't contribute to the beautiful voices. But God's always looking at our hearts saying, what kind of heart is this worship emanating out of? That's what really matters. Somebody could come in here embroiled in sin, but because they know it and aren't excusing it, and they come here needy for God's grace, God can love those words they're singing. And others can come here with all sorts of impressive religious credentials. And because the, the singing is flowing from a heart of pride and self-sufficiency and self-righteousness, 
God sees that worship is empty. Oh, we are so easily deceived by ourselves and by one another. Isn't it good to know God never is? Isn't that good? Oh, I I grieve that people think they need to have it all together to come to church and be part of church. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. And so what do they do with these far from God hearts and these lips that are so impressive? Well, they teach rules they've made up as if they're God's rules. You teach us doctrines, true teachings, just the commandments of men, these fences you've, you've erected. You don't know the difference anymore. You don't help people understand that there may be wise traditions, but you've gotten so far from the intent of the law with your traditions that you're missing the whole point, and you're actually going in the opposite direction. What does he say, verse 8? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He's not done. And he said to them, you have a fine way, a splendid, you just have a lovely way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. What you want is replacing what God wants. And you're doing it so religiously that people are really impressed by you. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses, and he's going to give him an example of one of the things they're doing that illustrates what he's talking about. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Right in the heart of the Ten Commandments, when God goes from honoring God with all you are and all you have and gets really practical... He says, take care of your parents. Honor your mother and father. Respect them. Take care of your mom and dad. He gets super practical. And he says, right, that the heart of the Ten Commandments is this law. Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, instead of obeying this, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making empty, making void like their worship, the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. What's going on here? Well, there's this thing of I'm devoting something to the Lord, this word Corbin. Corbin University up in Oregon, this Christian school is named Corbin because it means devoted to the Lord. I'm setting this apart. I'm devoting it to the Lord. It's like the money we decide ahead of time to give to the Lord. It's a good thing. But what they're doing is saying, well, I've set this apart, so I am using that to not obey the commandment to care for my parents. See, they're figuring out ways to get what they want in a way that seems really religious and spiritual and impressive, but it's doing nothing but undermining God's whole intent in giving the law in the first place. See, they're deviously taking rules that seem spiritual, that have a good intent, and then they use it for self-gain, use it to just feed their selfishness. 
their selfish interest. It's, it's, I just love the timing of our catechism question, right? Uh, that deals with worshiping God, Sabbath keeping, which can become legalistic too, like everything, but has an intent to point us to the eternal Sabbath, and it highlights the command of needing to honor your mother and father. The, the catechism question for this week is dealing with the issues in this passage. Beautiful timing. And, and Jesus now addresses the people. He doesn't want them to miss the message. He's preaching to them a powerful message. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. See, he wants them to know the true intent of the law. He wants them to understand what God was up to when he gave them the commands in the first place for these cleansings. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But these things that come out of a person are what defile him. So in other words, the food that uh, isn't properly cleansed or treated or with ritual washings, that's not the real problem. That was symbolic of what God was wanting to teach you about your spiritual condition and what it meant to approach him. Don't miss the point, in other words. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. It wasn't actually a parable, but they saw it as so mysterious. They saw it that way. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? He's baffled that they're still not getting it. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? See, these, these rituals, these cleansings, these ways of treating the food and the food laws, these were all symbols of spiritual realities I want you to get. It's not about the food. It's interesting, this follows after these food miracles. Feeding thousands as, a, again, a symbol of something deeper than just getting their stomachs filled for four hours. But pointing to him, the bread of life who will feed them in a way where they'll never hunger again. You don't get it either. See, do you see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? 19, since it enters not his heart, that's the issue. Like the distant hearts of the Pharisees, the issue here is your heart. What's entering your heart? What's coming out of your heart? But his stomach and is expelled literally right into the toilet. Into the, into the latrine. See, food just goes in and out. It's symbolic of something deeper I want you to see. That was the intent of all these rituals in the first place. The stomach is expelled. Now, Mark is about to do something he rarely does. He's only done this one time before. Matthew records this story too, but Mark is going to give a rare parenthetical statement here. And it's, Maybe the most important thing said in this passage. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Whoa. He didn't say all foods were clean. No, clearly, there are unclean foods that you don't eat according to the law. 
but he declares, he, he makes a declaration, he changes things here. He declares all foods clean. Something massive is happening right here. Something massive that points ahead to this, this shift in the way God's working among his people that brings about this access to God that the old covenant was preparing them for and now the new covenant brings into reality. It's something the apostles struggled with even after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended. It's something Paul confronted Peter about. And that was that there is this shift now between old covenant law keeping and new covenant law fulfillment in Jesus. That, that's what's going on with this thus he declared all foods uh, clean. He wasn't saying the, the law is bad and just ignore it, reject it. No, he's pointing ahead to his fulfilling of that law. This opening up of full access to Gentiles who have never had these law, uh, uh, laws about food or cleansings at all. They haven't had this old covenant system. He's pointing ahead to what he's going to do. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, see, from within the heart, that's the issue here, of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That's the problem the condition of your heart, and all of these actions that flow from a defiled heart. Notice, there's not this gray morality here. Jesus is clearly not saying, well, to each his own, you know, what, you know, who's to say what's wrong? No, he clearly sees good and evil. He clearly sees that there are certain actions that are evil. He, he lists twice as many uh, examples of sin and evil that, that Matthew does, that Jesus said. So, so he's, he's pointing out the reality of this. All right, let's make some points here. First thing I want us to notice is the authority of the Bible. The supremacy of the Bible the sufficiency of the Bible, of God's word to us. We really need to hear this. We really need to hear that God's word is our authority. <laughs> you might not think we need to hear that. We really need to hear it. Not just because our culture is constantly undermining the authority of the Bible, but because our hearts so easily do that all by ourselves. We really need to hear this. There, there is an authority to Scripture where all traditions, all rules, all regulations, all ways of doing things, the Bible is our authority. It is the Scriptures given to us by God. He tells us everything we need to know about the most important things. And he doesn't tell us anything he doesn't want us to know. Right? So the sufficiency of Scripture means we have everything we need here for lives of godliness, to know God fully and truly and, and sufficiently and personally. And 
Doesn't mean there's not mystery and great incomprehensibility, but God's given us everything we need to know him. And God hasn't uh, left us wondering what he may also require. The beauty of the sufficiency of scripture is that no one can ever come to you and say, you need to be doing this, if they can't point out where. Now again, it doesn't mean there aren't implications for, for living these things out, like the, the alcoholic illustration, right? Th- that would be foolish, that would be unwise, and so there's a place for that, but... But we ground it all here. If you can't be pointing back to the Bible, it doesn't have the authority of God's word in our lives. We've got to see the Bible in this way. And, and there are traditions uh, that, that I think have a troubling way of approaching this. So uh, one, of my, one of my, I think, our most significant difficulties with, say, Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy is is that there is this leveling of tradition in the word of God. And so it can be done in a way where tradition can be a healthy thing, but boy, once tradition starts to approach this, we've got real problems because eventually there are times where the tradition actually starts to teach things, not only that the Bible doesn't teach, but actually that is opposed to what the Bible does teach, just like these guys are doing. And so that source of authority is a big issue, a very big issue that we need to back up and consider seriously. Uh, just un- under Vatican, um, not Vatican II, uh, in the catechism, Pope John Paul reinstituted the authority of tradition as, as supreme with Scripture. We've got to realize that. So there are traditions that I think we need to step back and say, wow, is there a clear supremacy of the Bible in this tradition? But, but in more popular Christianity, this is a very, very troubling thing too. A very well-known uh, preacher, Rob Bell, who was a pastor of a large growing church and had a thriving ministry that did a lot of good things for a long time, is now touring with Oprah. And... and um, just a few weeks ago, she asked him about uh, gay marriage and where, she thought the, where he thought the church was going with that. And he and his wife said, we're clearly moving. We're, we're clearly moving toward, as a church, affirming gay marriage. And, and we're, um, we're evolving, his wife said. And then Rob Bell said, um, when you base your argument on 2,000-year-old letters and ignore the needs of people who you know in your life, it can't last very long. You'll soon be irrelevant. See, there can be a shift in the way we view things uh, that seems kind and tolerant, but is actually ultimately unloving because it's not taking the word of God as the word of God. Now, there are people who would accuse people who are sticking to what the Bible says as the legalistic Pharisees. But it's actually ultimately unloving because the truth is, if you don't have the Bible in its authority, you don't have Jesus in his authority. You don't have the gospel. The gospel, God's solution to our sin, God's provision for our uncleanness in Christ is something the Bible gives us. Its authority gives us the ability to boldly approach the throne of grace in confidence. This week, Robert Sosey 
a godly man who I admired deeply and looked up to in the faith as a hero, died. Bob taught at Talbot for 54 years. He died this week at 84, and he was a man of integrity, and he was godly, and he cared about a lot of theological issues, but at the heart of it all, he saw the doctrine of Scripture. One of his books uh, was about the authority of Scripture, the, the Scriptures as the basis of what we do. Another one of his books was about the need for the Word to transform our hearts, Very much of what this passage is teaching this morning. Listen to Bob Sosi. Our faith in Jesus is intrinsically linked to our faith in the truthfulness of the Bible. If we believe the Bible's record of Christ, that he is who said he was, he is who he said he was, namely the very revelation of God, the truth incarnate, then we must accept him as our authoritative teacher in all things, including the nature of the Bible. You can't have Jesus without the Bible. Jesus based his whole life and ministry on the Bible. He constantly quoted scripture. He constantly uh, saw his whole life as an extension of all the prophecies, a fulfillment of all the prophecies. Jesus, from the beginning of his life and ministry to the very end, is quoting scripture. It is written, is his claim when he makes claims. So the scriptures becomes the basis for, for knowing Jesus, for submitting to the authority of Jesus. A lot of people say they want to buddy up to Jesus, but you can't do that if you don't buddy up to the Bible. Because Jesus did. Jesus saw it as his authority. It was, it was what he based everything on. And the Bible's very clear about actually something Jesus and the Pharisees agree on. Jesus and the Pharisees are obviously disagreeing about a lot here. But they're in complete agreement about one thing in this passage. Did you notice what it was? What do Jesus and the Pharisees completely agree on in this, in this passage? What would you say? What are they completely in agreement on? They disagree about the source of the human problem. They disagree about the solution to the human problem. But what do they agree on? That there is a human problem. That's right. There's a serious problem. See, Jesus and the Pharisees are in complete agreement that we need to be clean. Because we're not. We're defiled. Talk about another thing that is not popular. Oh, man, I, my, in my life, I have heard so much self-esteem, affirmation, and even in the church, there can be uh, a, a humanistic view of the human condition that ignores sin and comes up with all sorts of euphemisms for it and explanations for it and psychologizing of it and rationalization for it and, and excuse, it's my parents' fault, it's the society's fault, it's the man, it's the system. It's, no, Jesus is saying it's your heart and it's dirty and it needs to be clean. Jesus and the Pharisees are on the same page here. They know the Bible, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, our pollution, like the wind take us away. We need cleansing. 
We need it. And you can ignore that all you want. You can try to act like that's not true. But deep down, the human condition is such that human beings just can't escape this. You could call these things just a psychological problem we need to move beyond or something those ancients believed but we realize is not true anymore. And we've moved well beyond this because now we're educated, advanced people. No, we can't escape this. I believe that every one of us in here this morning, deep down, feels a need to be forgiven, a need to be cleansed, a recognition that I'm just not okay, no matter what people say. You know, Oprah asked Rob Bell, what's one thing you know for sure? You know what he said? That we're all going to be okay. The Bible just does not say that. It it says there's a judgment day coming, and and we need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We've got a serious sin problem. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. We're all in the same boat. And sometimes it takes something like September 11th or World War II to make self-assured, modern, self-righteous people wake up. Doesn't it? You watch that horror on your television screen. And you've got to have words for it. You've got to have explanations for it that aren't shallow and superficial. Oh, we just need better politics. Come on. We just need more education, please. Maybe Nazi Germany was the most advanced society our world had ever seen to that point. And they committed some of the most unspeakable evil our world's ever seen. And it really woke up a lot of intellectuals in that time. There was this shift, these very optimistic, humanistic, atheist uh, intellectuals got a wake-up call with World War II. There was a shift that's fascinating to watch among Bible scholars and theologians who were moving in these liberal directions. Uh, Guys like Karl Barth suddenly needed to understand this sin problem that was so evident, right? Bonhoeffer's the same way. But it it was political intellectuals as well. Listen to C.E.M. Jode, this British intellectual who was an atheist and wrote a book called Back to Belief. Look what he says. It's because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the political left were always being disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, by the subservience of intellect to emotions, by the failure of of socialism to arrive, by the behavior of nations and politicians, by the masses' preference for Hollywood to Shakespeare and for Mr. Sinatra to Beethoven. Above all, by the recurrent fact of war. Got to have an explanation for the human problem. That isn't explained away with some more temporary solutions like politics, education, or time. It's a whole different deal. And and we realize we can't solve it. We can't help ourselves. We just can't. And you may be saying, well, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not even very religious. I'm not inclined to, I don't mind strolling in 20 minutes late with my Starbucks. That doesn't bother me. I, I don't feel like I have to answer to anybody. But I believe that, that, Every one of us is trying to prove ourselves in some way. You may have not opted for religion as a way to do that. You're actually maybe reacting against that sort of mentality. But I promise you, you're trying to prove yourself in some way. We all are. We all have this self-righteous, pharisaical bent. Some of the most uh, critical people of the Pharisees and self-righteous people do it incredibly self-righteously. 
Right? We, we, we can be criticizing self-righteousness and be amazingly self-righteous in the midst of it. So we've always got to be including ourselves in Jesus' judgments here. And so what are you doing? How are you doing? Why do you work so hard? What are you trying to prove? Why do you try to attain levels of acceptability or popularity? Where, is, where are you banking your sufficiency, your acceptability. Oh man, Southern California is just loaded with celebrity worship and wanting to be cool and beautiful and, and it never adds up to taking care of our great problem of sin. You ever read magazines written for adolescent girls? I do. <laughs> I do. They're very telling. They're very telling. May I read a quotation to you that, that is in Tim Keller's excellent book on, on, on Mark. Listen, listen to what this editor of three adolescent girl magazines, Sassy, L Girl, and YM Jane. You ready? Here's what she says. Why do we crave, crave celebrities? Here's my theory, she says. She's an editor. She's been doing this for years. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed and planted liposuction stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential, but doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but their fame makes us feel more insignificant. She says, I'm part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. Yeah, what are you banking on to make yourself clean and beautiful? Just a little bit of a better complexion. A little bit more accomplishment in your field. It's one more degree. What's going to do it for you? One more promotion. What, what's really going to make you feel whole and clean? You need a new heart. Religion, politics, social action, self-help, self-esteem. It's not going to work. You need a new heart. You need to be made clean in a way you can't clean yourself. And it all starts with a heart that is humbled by your sin. Doesn't try to ignore it or explain it away, but humbled by it. And that heart comes by the work of the Spirit that God promised would happen in the new covenant. Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, he says. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll give you the ability to see your sin for what it is, see me for who I am, and respond to me in humble contrition so that I become your savior. I become what you need more than anything else. You know, Zechariah gives us this picture. He gives this picture of a vision he has of the high priest who was supposed to be ritually clean, and he's on the Day of Atonement. And if you go to Zechariah 3, we have this image of this priest, this high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, going to offer sacrifice. 
His name is Joshua, Yeshua, Savior, and he comes and Zechariah sees him and after his extensive cleansings that he's supposed to have had to offer sacrifice, he sees him and he's covered with excrement. It's a shocking picture. And I'd love to just look at Zechariah 3. We've got to see it and see what's going on here. What? What in the world, the, the, the priest who's supposed to represent this ritual cleanliness? Zechariah 3, right, right near the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah 3, listen. Then he showed me Yeshua, the high priest, Zechariah 3.1. Standing before the angel of the Lord. Skip down to verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord with filthy garments. Even the greatest human emblem of ritual cleanliness is filthy. And the angel of the Lord said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will, I will clothe you with pure vestments. Look at verse eight. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that's what happens. God comes and he provides what we need. Jesus comes and he who knew no sin became sin, was considered sinful. He makes us clean because he got dirty. He takes on our sins so that we could take on his righteousness. He cleanses us in all those Old Testament regulations and cleansings and priests and sacrifices and offerings. They were all pointing to the only one who would ultimately take away our sin and make us clean. And it's Jesus. Jesus makes us clean, so we go all the way to the end of human history in Revelation 19. Look at Revelation 19 in closing. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Oh, we become cleansed in Jesus. He gives us his righteousness, his robes of righteousness. And out of that new identity flow acts of righteousness. It doesn't mean we don't care about obedience and have religious observance. It doesn't mean we don't do those things, but for totally different motives than the Pharisees, than just nice religious people. But because we've been made clean, we act like it. Because we've been made righteous, we love righteousness. Never to prove anything, never to earn anything, never to demonstrate how worthy we were or are. But because Jesus has done it all. He's the one who provides for us everything we need. Everything we need. Let's pray. Lord, help us 
to believe that, to be so different than just religious people whose hearts are far from you, Lord. Help us to demonstrate our rest in Jesus with lives of joyful dependence. Help us to uh, depend on the Spirit's work to make our hearts new and yield fruit of righteousness as we walk in newness of life. Lord, thank you that it's done. Different than every other religion in the world. It's done. And we don't do anything to add to what Jesus has fully accomplished for us. Help us, Lord, to get the gospel. Help us to hear from Jesus this morning and rest in him and know that we've been cleansed by him. And we are debtors to mercy alone with no fear, no offerings to add to Jesus' work, no terrors of the law of God Our Savior's obedience and blood are all we need, and we pray that he would be exalted as we depend on him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.